welcome. You're checking out The Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. In 2017, the mission of this podcast was more important than ever. The presidential election left just about everyone with a grievance. Americans were especially divided and at each other's throats. As is our passion, we set out to consider what might be growing beneath the surface, behind the headlines, off the radar of other media. In what felt to many like darkness, we looked for seeds. And what did we find? Here are just a few of the voices you would have heard on our program in the last 12 months. New ways of working, of governing, of partnering. Our many guests brought us stories of indignation and inspiration, even joy. I start every week by welcoming listeners and viewers to The Laura Flanders Show, which I call the place where the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. And they are, really. Now, we need you to become a sustaining member of this podcast. With just $2 a month, you can join with us and keep this half hour coming free, public, and yours. If everyone listening to this year-end review contributed just $2 a month and shared this short podcast with, say, two friends, we'd have enough to remain fully funded all year long. So how about it? Stay kind, stay curious, and do your part. Spread the word. For everyone here at The Laura Flanders Show, I thank you. We're in a time in which the system isn't working for most people. They know it. They just don't know where exactly to go with their understanding. And that means capitalism has failed to generate the support among the mass of people without which its future is very much in doubt. We know that if we close the wage gap between people who are white and people who are of color, the GDP would be $2.1 trillion higher. When you are kept impoverished, that itself is an act against democracy. Keeping workers poor keeps them disenfranchised. While Donald Trump was doing everything to make as much money as he could off the government, we were winning real-world victories for you at the local level. And that is the type of conversation that moves us beyond rhetoric with people. We know that the ways in which right-wing and really Democrat Party policies also play out is not in favor of small businesses, that they're giving massive tax breaks and subsidies to multinational corporations that are pushing the race to the bottom of the economy that hurts small businesses. An economic angle on life is just one part of the whole. We have to be rounded and work together and, and really embed economics back in the social world from which it came. We have the highest child poverty rate in this country and invest the least in our children. This is not coincidental. This book I kind of wrote in a little bit of a frenzy because I really wanted it to be out before there is a major crisis other than the crisis that is Donald Trump. Is the infrastructure the last thing that private capitalists have to exploit? It's like conquering a new country. It's the largest amount of wealth in the world that has not been privatized and grabbed. The Russians call it gravitization. Vulture funds, many of them from the United States, who've bought up huge blocks of Ireland and rental property and are operating effectively as a cartel, which is driving people out of their homes. More concretely, these are hedge fund vultures that have been preying on Puerto Rico for years, the same way they preyed on Greece, the same way they preyed on Spain, the same way they preyed on Argentina. Ordinary people help ordinary people. It has an impact on people's sense of responsibility for other people, and I think that's a really very important attribute of human populations, but unfortunately lacking in the very rich and ultra-rich. Crisis has generated opportunities for us 
not only to look back and immediately focus on why we are where we are, but really to imagine a different kind of future. And in the Catalan vote, it's not only about we want independence, we don't want independence. It's mainly about we want to vote. We don't perceive refugees or migrants as passive recipients of aid. They are active agents of social change. Once ICE starts responding to abusive employers who are retaliating against workers for exercising their basic rights, or for expressing their political beliefs, or for addressing conditions that are frankly subhuman, they have become an agent of abusive employers. No government at the moment at the federal level recognizes our trans identity. There is a rhetoric, which is the part I love the most about New Sanctuary Coalition, that we don't adhere to of the good immigrant and the bad immigrant. Our solidarity is not just about our shared struggle, it's also about our shared joy and our shared visions and, and aspirations for each other as, as human beings in the world. Mm -hmm. It also gets to, are you a productive member of society? Absolutely. Who's absolutely. defining productive? Absolutely. And then it quantifies our, our bodies to what we can produce rather than in who we are. Mm. We've seen major pro-choice organizations rebrand themselves, reproductive justice organizations. We've seen hundreds of women of color organizations come about. Because at the end of the day, in order for us to actually be successful in the resistance, we have got to be open to folks who have different levels yeah. of experience with this kind of repression. I'm learning to be more patient. There's a really big difference between the folks who attend the Trump rallies, wear the red hats, that get into fights uh, with protesters, from people who are actually searching for some type of real economic solution. It's a bleak proposition a little bit to go out and face off with your own government, you know, with nothing but your hands and a sign. And we wanted to show where people were getting this courage from. Black Lives Matter is non-party political. We don't side with the right or the left because we're actually trying to find those alternative spaces. What we had before integration was a lot better than what we have now. You could say we were more like a cooperative kind of community where nobody went without. To the browning of America, to the changing of status quo, to the loss of, quote, white power. In fact, demographers tell us that in 20 years, there will actually be no racial ethnic majority in this country. Hurt people hurt people. I and mean, this is a time where we really need healed people to heal people. And creativity does that. Solutions does that. There is something about the spirit of creative people and peace and love, meant not ironically, that can make a difference. On the other hand, uh, narcissism of small difference, this idea that your particular way of fixing the world is better than anyone else's, is a deadly sabotage. Especially now that we have the internet and social media, the storytelling can happen on so much more of an individual and um, dispersed level that we needn't really rely on the media or official channels. The Allied Media Conference is a nexus of that kind of sharing for us. Our role is to hold that space and to make it the most generative space possible for these types of critical connections. The question of whether that whole upsurge of energy can be used not just to swell the numbers in street protests, but to actually engage with the Democratic Party in a new and dramatically different way is the big question of our time. This is that moment for building that kind of alignment and I'm seeing that happen and that's exciting and I hope that as we navigate our way through this that it will redefine how people work with each other. It's easy to join a movement when the movement's moving. 
it's very hard to do it at the early stages when you're developing the preconditions of the movement. And I think that's where we are. I think it's a very, very important period of history. Next up, our weekly podcast, Standing Up to Big Brother with Denmori Sounder Arajan. This week on The Laura Flanders Show, can Americans learn about digital security from Dalit activists with experience in India? We'll find out and bring you some tech tips that you can use. This interview originally aired earlier this year, since which we've released a series of instructional videos that enable you to secure your digital world, or at least do your best. It's all coming up right here on The Laura Flanders Show, the place where the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. Welcome. The Trump administration took office at a critical juncture. Eight years of Bush followed by eight years of Obama settled nothing in the debate over our personal freedoms or the length government can go to to monitor, gather, and intervene in our lives. Those years set up an enormous surveillance state, the FBI, the National Security Administration, the CIA. They're all the most powerful they've ever been, and that's the state that the Trump team inherited in January 2017. It's a team that had next to no experience in government, but lots of experience in on- and offline bullying. The combination had lots of people worried. Already, there was a rush to sign up for email encryption services and a spike in downloads for encrypted messaging tools. Activists, journalists, and ordinary Americans were asking themselves, what can we do? On The Laura Flanders Show, we talk a lot on this program about the need to communicate more, not less, and with people we don't know, to talk with open hearts and gather information from unfamiliar places. So how was one to do that in an era of surveillance and state control? What happens to storytelling in a time of mass communication spheres? Those were some of the questions I asked our guest, a transmedia storyteller, technologist, and journalist who believes that story is the most important unit of social change. Her work has been recognized by the Producers Guild of America Diversity Program, the Museum of Contemporary Art, the MIT Center for New Media Studies, and many more. Denmori Sounderarajan is executive director of Equality Labs and one of the first Dalit women online. After the attacks on the U.S. of 9-11, she founded the first women of color media and tech lab, she says. I welcome Denmori to the program in January 2017. Denmori, welcome to the program. Welcome back, I should say. <laughs> Thank you for having me. You know, your face may look familiar because people who watch this program re- regularly will have seen you not so long ago on a panel about violence against women. What brings you, an activist against violence against Dalit women especially, into this place, a conversation about surveillance and state control? Well, I think that it's actually a very, unfortunately, natural progression. Whenever you see state control and state violence, you see that the mechanisms of control translate to many different kinds of platforms. So the bullying that we see on the streets translates to bullying online. Mm. The surveillance and stalking that we see in the streets translates to surveillance and stalking online. And frankly, I think, you know, when you work on an issue where you're calling out one of the biggest black human rights actors in the world, the Indian government, you are going to be surveilled by the Indian government. 
And, you know, I think that you can't talk about the, the power of what it is to speak out without understanding some of the consequences given mass surveillance in our societies today. Now, you've already touched on it. You work internationally. Absolutely. Um, for our audience here, talk about what you see coming down the pike in this moment. Well, I think what's interesting is is that when we talk about surveillance and being a U.S.-based organizer, um, we are now living in one of the largest surveilled um, times of our lives. And I think, you know, there's been a creep around the loss of our right to privacy that, you know, initially the conversation most people had was, well, I have nothing to hide. That's right. I have nothing to hide. So if this helps people get, quote-unquote, terrorists, then, um, you know, let me give a little bit of my privacy in order to be a little bit more free, not realizing this is a devil's bargain, you know. And, you know, and unfortunately, as you mentioned in your intro, the CIA, the NSA, and our local police departments are coordinating surveillance in a way that they've never done before and are tracking, at, uh, tracking us in a way that's unprecedented. And what do we know about the Trump team's approach to all of this? Well, of course, you know, we're in this process right now of um, waiting to see how the cabinet fills out. But we know just even from his initial announcement, like he has Giuliani as a director of cybersecurity. Rudolph Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> former mayor of New York. Yes. And I think in that capacity, um, really was responsible for some of the most regressive surveillance policies piloted in New York that became adopted by many cities across the country. Under him, he put William Bratton, the head of the NYPD, he put into policies that led to stop and frisk, you know, which we know has led to the decline of relationships between people of color and policing, police institutions. But also he did something very interesting um, right before 9-11. He created something called um, the demographic unit, uh, which later became the zone assessment unit which basically surveilled every single mosque in a 100-mile radius of New York City. And that included sending people to be surveillance operators within mosques, and it, they surveilled communications as well as the actual geographic locations of community centers, community businesses, and even people's homes. This is The Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. My guest, Denmori Sounder-Rarajan, is executive director of Equality Labs, a South Asian-American human rights startup working at the intersection of story, art, and security. Since the show aired earlier this year, Rudolph Giuliani did not become director of cybersecurity, but rather an informal advisor to President Donald Trump. More to come.
was The Time Is Now by Masters at Work featuring the wonderful artist Wumi. This is The Laura Flanders Show. Independent media is more important than ever and up against stiffer odds than ever, what with the overturning of net neutrality by the FCC. Make a year-end donation now at lauraflanders.com. We can't do this without you. While you're there, check out the digital shorts we created in partnership with our guests' organization. That's Equality Labs. Then Mori Sandararajan is executive director of the labs. She talks in the next section about the intersection between policing and surveillance going back to 1713. So what you were describing so far has more in my mind to do with policing, they call it law enforcement, but policing than cyber technology and online surveillance. How do you see that part of this picture shaping up? Well, I think this is a really important point because I think when most people think about surveillance, they think it really rose like with the rise of technology, that somehow when we started to carry devices, we became more unsafe with regard to our right to privacy. And we didn't? No. I mean, we've got to have like a whole reframe and understand that surveillance was always part of state violence and the U.S. settler colonial state. So what I mean by that is, is that even though we have the right to privacy guaranteed in our Constitution, that only guarantees it for those that were white, mm-hmm. male, and cis. If you were black, if you were indigenous, you were surveilled very heavily by the, colon- the, the colonial administration that eventually became our government. So, for example, in New York City, um, in 1713, they passed this law called the Lantern Law. Have you heard of this? Mm-mm. So, during that time, because they were afraid of people mobilizing in the dark to resist um, slavery, they would anyone who was black and indigenous and over the age of 14 had to carry a lantern. <laughs> And if you didn't carry a lantern while you were walking, you could be subjected to 40 lashes by your master and worse. And that idea was, at that time, that was the technology of the moment, you know. And it's the forerunner of what we see now when you go into, um, you know, black and brown communities in New York City where they do those massive lights and you can't focus because they're so bright. Anytime there's been a shift in technology, we've seen it turned in a way to be able to mm. to manufacture control of the state of our, our lives. And at the very same time, there's a consumer strategy, too, in the sense that we've been sold that carrying our own lantern will make life so much easier. Exactly. I mean, but we have to think about, like, whether it's the iPhone or whether we're using Google Search, the devices and these platforms, they're not really free. We're paying them with our data. Yeah. And what that means is, is like, for example, let's say you're doing a Google search and you're about to go to the Women's March and you search, you know, what are my rights? Where's the location for direct uh, action? You know, how do I do civil disobedience? Just from a set of questions of what you put into Google search, you can be put into a database of people that they assume are going to be unlawful actors for that protest. So you don't need to be interrogated. You've already given it away in your search inquiries. So what do we do? Not search for that information? No, I think what we can do, and the way I talk about it, it's like harm reduction. So we know that these devices are going to leak data to people that want to do bad things to us. So we want to be able, and this is the conversation in digital security, is practice harm reduction by using circumvention tools. So things like Signal on the phone can really help you protect like your text messages and the way that you talk to people so that you're off of some of the surveillance grid Mm -hmm. for folks. You can also use um, DuckDuckGo as an alternative to Google so that you don't create like a data tracked search engine profile so your searchers are kind of free from Google and Google Analytics. So that's a 
program that doesn't maintain a history of what you've searched for? Exactly, exactly. Or a cookie. Or a cookie. <laughs> friendly name for something not so friendly. I know, exactly. Um, and the other thing that I recommend is something like uh, something to protect your network access. So right now, if you go to Starbucks or if you go to um, a Wi-Fi network in an organization, you're, when you're connecting to the Internet, you're connecting to the Internet in the wide open. What you need is something like a condom to protect your access so that none of your data leaks. So to protect your network access or give yourself that condom, um, one of the things that we recommend is something called a virtual private network mm-hmm. um, or using something like Tor. So I think that combination of using Signal, using a VPN to protect your network access, and then being able to use DuckDuckGo to anonymize your searches helps you be able to begin to start to take back some of your digital security. So half of my audience, I'm sure, is thinking, okay, now she just lost me. Um, (laughs) But the other half is saying, well, this is rudimentary and everybody should know. What's the truth about how tech-savvy you need to be to do any of these things? Well, again, um, I don't think you need to be tech-savvy at all. Many of these things don't require a lot of um, technical knowledge. They just require patience um, and also a collaborative community to help you understand what you don't know Mm -hmm. and to help you get to that point. And I think that's a big part of the work that we do in Equality Labs. Like We are a woman of color, um, gender nonconforming, trans-centered tech collective that really looks at saying that anyone can start to begin to protect themselves and that self-defense really begins with community. This is not something where we can protect ourselves just one at a time. We really need to have a community coordinated self-defense. And a lot of that means centering not the technology, but centering our community Mm. conversations and our power together. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the lab has discovered in terms of what people are going through? Examples, maybe? Well, we did a series of rapid response trainings all throughout the country right after the Trump administration. And I think one of the things that was really alarming was that there was a lot of widespread paranoia and a sense that people felt very disempowered about how to be able to start to create some very common sense measures related how to deal with um, state surveillance, but also that most of the groups that are the most vulnerable are the most vulnerable also because of capacity. You know, most people are using Google Docs and are keeping their databases and Google servers because they don't have the money for paid services, you know, or they don't know that there are ways to protect your network access by getting a paid VPN versus like a free VPN or, you know, what have you. So I think part of it is just being able to provide compassionate, very rationed information at a time when there's a lot of disinformation. Um, But also, you know, we've lived through massive surveillance in our communities before. This is what the heart of COINTELPRO was. And so I think this is also another really important piece is that I think sometimes in intergenerational dialogues around surveillance, people feel, especially like parents like my mom's generation, feel like I don't have a place at the table because I don't even know how to really understand Facebook. Like my mom's always like, what's up? What is that? How do I do that? Um, But I actually think that elders offer really critical understanding of how to understand um, how to move around a violent state apparatus because we they lived through the attacks on yes COINTEL exactly exactly and and strategies people used like you know whether it was like flags on buildings code words phone trees all of that knowledge we need to bring back into our movements and we need to bring them back now the equality lab has done us all the favor of coming up with a curriculum to help us make sense of some of this 
Can you tell me a bit about what's in it? Yes. So this curriculum was really a labor of love by women around the country to really look at the ways that we could create a curriculum that centered ourselves, our self-care, and our self-defense when it comes to operating in online spaces. And it looks very specifically at how you can secure your devices, secure your communications, secure your network access, as well as secure your social networking. So I think that most people, when they start to get into digital security, it starts to feel really overwhelming and you don't know which conduit to go in. So we we worked with a graphic artist to really be able to center ourselves within it. So you see a lot of illustrations of women using technology, um, but also uh, to really provide easy inroads to each of those different areas so that people, when they walk away, feel really empowered and they start to be able to use the curriculum to have these conversations in their community organizing networks and in their communities that they're from. The curriculum is available online on our website at equalitylabs.org, and we'll also give you guys a downloadable copy through this segment so people can download that as well as quick tip sheets that they can share within their groups. That's fantastic. That's then Mori Rarajan, Executive Director of Equality Labs. I'm Laura, and this is The Laura Flanders Show. This program originally aired earlier this year, since which we teamed up with Equality Labs to create a series of instructional short videos to help regular people People figure out how to protect your digital world. Take a listen to a sample of our how-to on securing your iPhone. We'll be right back. Equality Labs and the Laura Flanders Show are excited to help you secure your iPhone. Phones are our frenemies when it comes to digital security. From communications to banking, they are the center of our digital lives, which make them a crucial point of vulnerability. From phone seizures to security breaches to intrusive government surveillance, the best defense is a collective one where we are all more literate in how we can secure our phones. Putting a pin code on your iPhone ensures you have one layer of protection if anyone ever gets a hold of your physical phone. We recommend a pin code over a fingerprint and even a swipe because there are more legal protections for the pin code. All iPhones come encryption enabled right out of the box, but it's only activated if you have your pin set up. So do not hesitate to set up your pin today. For additional security, add an app lock software to protect other apps you'd like to secure. Some apps like Signal have their own app lock, so check it and secure up. Make sure you turn off location services. Much of the location data collected on our phone is unnecessary, and many corporations use, sell, and swap this data without our consent. So scroll through the applications in your location services and choose which apps you want to track data and which you don't. This returns consent back to you in terms of corporate location tracking. Keep in mind, though, it does not prevent the government from tracking you through your phone. If that's just a sample of our How to Secure Your Digital World series, that one, the tutorial on your iPhone. We have the whole series of instructional videos at our website. That's lauraflanders.com. They were produced in collaboration with Equality Labs, the organization headed up by my guest today, Denmori Sounderarajan. You can go to our website and watch the tutorials at lauraflanders.com and learn how to secure your iPhone, your Android, or your digital network. While you're there, make a year-end donation and support all that we do. Help us meet our goal of $10,000 for another great year of programming in 2018. Any amount makes a big difference. We can't do the show without you. Thanks to all who have donated already. Happy holidays to everyone. 
That's at lauraflanders.com. In this digital age, surveillance needs recontextualizing, says my guest, not as an issue of technology, but one of control. Let's talk to the other side of this for a minute. People have real fears about subversive activity and terror attacks. Um, And Donald Trump has proven himself very good at plugging into those, whether it was the San Bernardino attack or the uh, shooting in Orlando. He's talked about how our constraints on the FBI and how our corporate resistance to collaborating with government, he went off to Apple, um, have led to people dying, have led to attacks like this. How do you intervene in that discourse, which, you know, it's a big mix of people who have those fears? Well, first of all, I think that's hyperbole. I don't, I absolutely disagree that the response to terrorism is greater surveillance. But also, I think what's at stake is really who do we want to be as a country moving forward? Um, and my sense is, is that when you jeopardize the right to privacy, you jeopardize the right to assembly, and the je- you jeopardize the right to free speech. Those three rights are the core of who we are as a democracy. Mm-hmm. And I think we can't afford that risk, especially at a time right now, to, to not be able to have those pillars strong and functioning. And right now, the right to privacy is extremely, extremely anemic, given the, the way that it's been eroded, not just by policy, but also by the corporations frankly. And I think this is why the work of self-defense and looking at digital security as an important way that we kind of gird all of our movements across the board is one of the ways that we can make sure that we can organize safely through this next administration. But just to push you just slightly, what if you're not in an organization, you're not in a movement, you're not getting a whole lot of education, and maybe you don't have a big feeling about the nature of the state. You're just scared there'll be an attack on your school. And you're thinking, let the FBI do what they want. I think that um, it's a very short-sighted position to have because you don't know what's going to be used against you when and where and why. So let's say that you're a mother in Kansas who feels that position, um, but you have a child that is... I know um, people in Brooklyn who feel that way. Yeah, okay, let's say say you're someone who um, is a mother in Brooklyn who feels that way. You don't know what are the layers of connection you might have to someone that might be vulnerable through a sting like this. But also, when they have that data, they don't just have that data for that moment. They have that data for an entirety of your life. And you don't know when it might be used against you, when it might be used against your child, when it might be used against someone that you know. There is no parameters about how this data can be used against you whenever. So it's, it's, it's not something that's theoretical that we have to, to look at. It is actually something that's functional right now. Now, as you said at the beginning, and I'd love us to end there, these are not brand new times, although we may have brand new tools and technology that we're dealing with. Talk a little bit about how you navigate all of this. You travel across borders. You work with a variety of people. You're trying to build broader, not narrower movements. And you know this information about the tech tools that exist for state control. How do you operate? How do you, what's your strategy in this time? For me, I think that, you know, the core of my strategy starts with self-care and compassion. Because like I said, meeting so many people, um, there is this clear sense of grief and this clear sense of anxiety when dealing with the threats that come out of mass surveillance and, um, you know, and state violence that's connected to that. 
So I, I try to just ground myself one day at a time and then have compassion for the fact that we're, we're actually very rational to have this sense of anxiety. We're very rational to have this deep fear because it is frightening. We've seen people's lives utterly destroyed and taken away when these tools are implemented against people. So um, in knowing that, I think that our best defense is actually each other. Our best defense is caring for each other. Our best defense is knowing that we're going to fight, but fight with joy. And the sense that we are on the right side and that we, um, that we will win is there, but we just have to be able to tap into the joy that will allow us to pass through this very dark period. Is there one story or, or one person's experience that focused you to focus on this issue, to concentrate on this issue of surveillance and that aspect of state control? Well, for me, the reason why I entered surveillance um, and the and the digital privacy issue so strongly was actually myself and my team were hacked. Um, we were just about to do um, a massive tour of Dalit women who were talking about sexual violence. And an hour before our guests were um, to arrive, um, we were attacked by Hindu fundamentalists. They attacked our phones. They attacked our computers. And one of my staff members was directly targeted because she was an immigrant. And they masqueraded as an immigration officer. And they told her she was in violation of her visa and she was going to be picked up right away. And they were pushing her because they wanted personal details as to where she was because she was going to be deported immediately. And I will never forget the tone of her voice. I will never forget the fear in our organization. And, you know, eventually we worked with a security consultant who helped us kind of rectify our comms and identify the actor, which was a soft actor of um, the Indian state, and they were Hindu fundamentalists. But knowing the vulnerability, knowing that they went after us because we were women, knowing that they went after someone who was immigrant and was scared within our team, I was just so mad. And then I also was... Um, very clear that I couldn't just think of a solution that would only help us and only help me. We, I, if, if we were targeted in this way, how many other canaries in the coal mine were also going to be equally vulnerable? And with that, that was really the impetus for Equality Labs, like large-scale digital security initiatives saying, no, as women of color, gender non-conforming trans people, we are not going to go back in the shadows. We are going to fight but we're going to fight strategically and we're going to bring all of our people safely on the other side. And, and that, to me, is really how we carry each other's water. Just because we're vulnerable doesn't mean that um, uh, our vulnerability is unique to us. The state will find all communities that it wants to destroy in the way of its extractive, violent policies that it wants to push forth. But the message that we have to the predator-in-chief is, look, we are not going anywhere. We are staying here and we're going to organize safely as we resist. Demory, thank you so much for being with us. Always great to talk with you. Yes, thank you. That was Denmori Sounder-Rarajan, Executive Director of Equality Labs. They were our partners in a new series of instructional videos, Digital Security 101, we call it. They make it easier to navigate cybersecurity in a way that the average person can understand. You can find it all at our website. That's lauraflanders.com. As 2017 comes to a close, please make that year-end donation. We're trying to hit a goal of $10,000 to kick our 2018 season off well. Thanks to all who have donated already. We couldn't have had such a stellar year without you. Go to lauraflanders.com to do your part. And happy holidays from me and the whole Laura Flanders Show team. Thanks. 
This show is produced by yours truly with Monica Mohapatra, Natasha Elena Ullman, Jeannie Hopper, Danica D'Souza, Emily Allen, Charlotte Prager, and Diego Romero Montiel. I'd like to hear what you think, so write to me. That's Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at lauraflanders.com. I do my best to get back to you as soon as I can. The program's made possible by the Novo Foundation and listeners like you. Become a member today. Thanks for your ongoing support. We couldn't do it without you. Stay kind. Stay curious. Till the next time, I'm Laura Flanders. <laughs>